Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Good morning. I uh, was telling the earlier... um, I was going to say earlier congregation, but you're all one congregation. So the people who were, you know, who love God more than you and were here earlier than you. I don't know how else to say it. You think God loves one of you more than I don't know. We'll find out one day. So, okay, that was a joke. You don't know me. But anyways, um, but I I was thinking and and again, just singing with you and the the songs we're singing in in, in light of, um, you know, as Nathan mentioned, larger issues and stuff, but also in our own hearts, there is this defiant hope that sometimes our singing needs to reflect because this world is really broken and our hearts uh, can be disordered and we have internal and external challenges. And sometimes singing, um, praising God, uh, but there is a defiance kind of in the face of death, kind of like Paul staring at death and saying, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Paul's not naive. Death actually really hurts. But Christ absorbed the ultimate sting of death to overcome it. And so we can both be, I was just, you know, thinking about this them that our gospel's really incredible because we worship a crucified Savior, which means we never have to lie about how bad things are in our own lives and in the world. We have a God who takes who allows us to be honest about how messed up things can be. But we also worship not just a crucified Savior, but a risen Lord. And so we can be hopeful, and even defiantly hopeful, in the midst of that brokenness and pain. Um, So uh, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Oh, Father... um, Thank you for knowing us, knowing us like no other, knowing us better than we even know ourselves, knowing us better than our children and our spouses and friends know us. And somehow that knowledge did not make you run from us, but to us. We feel like we need to cover up and pretend and shine ourselves up to be presentable to others, sometimes even to you. We claim to believe a gospel. We claim to believe good news, but it's hard for us. Help us not to just think you were kind to us in the past, but you're kind to us in the present. And that you really are active and working by your spirit in our hearts and our lives and in this world. Give hope exactly where hope is needed. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today I want to actually think through this question of why doesn't God just instantly change me? Uh, Because of what I do for a living um, as a college professor and and writing and and speaking and stuff, sometimes one of the privileges and kind of weird things that happens is people will write me letters or ask me questions that they they might have these questions but feel uncomfortable in a sense asking someone that they know better. Sometimes you want to ask someone who you don't know. There's this like, there's a, it's almost like a freedom, like I'll never see you again, so I can actually ask this, you know. 
And so they do tend to have really honest questions. Um, and I, I was reflecting on, you know, um, a woman writing me who was, had been dealing with an eating disorder for a very long time. And as she was dealing with this, you know, it had been incredibly painful for her, right? Causing all kinds of, of physical pain and challenges, but not just affecting her body. It affected her ability to work, to socialize, to feel safe in relationships. Affected her ability to feel known and loved. And so as she wrote, she just kept saying, I just want to be, and the language she used was over. I want to be over it. Which makes so much sense. Not just over that, but over all of the things associated with this great struggle. Now your, your challenge may not be an eating disorder, and I don't want to equate all of these things, but, but all of us here have things. There, there are people here, been doing this long enough, I know, there are people here that are dealing with real challenges with pornography. And they long to be free from it. And it just keeps, they keep falling into it. Others here really struggle with this sense of self-absorption. You're, you find yourself with other people and it's not even comfortable being with others because even no matter how you're presenting, you're constantly thinking, how are they receiving me? And it's exhausting. You long to be free from that. For some of us, maybe it's anger. You're, you can't believe the kind of rage that dwells below the surface hidden behind the smiling face. Or maybe it's sloth or laziness where you think tomorrow's going to be different. Tomorrow I'm actually going to do some of the important things I need to do and instead hours and hours go by scrolling through YouTube videos. I don't know what it is for you, but all of us struggle with things. Which brings up the really interesting question. Does God actually like when we sin? What do you think? No, okay, good. You got this one, right? I'm a professor, so you're like, crush the questions you know, right? <laughs> Get those, right? So God doesn't like us sinning, right? Let's, I hope we can all agree. Does God love when we hurt ourselves and other people? No, of course not. Right? So that actually brings up something that's a bit of a challenge. If God doesn't love us being greedy or lustful, if he doesn't think sinning is a good thing, then when he saved us, why didn't he just instantly change us? Right? Why did it seem like he just started and then stopped? And the fact that we don't just instantly change brings up all kinds of questions in our hearts, sometimes at a subconscious level. Maybe, maybe God doesn't care. I think even maybe more commonly, as we struggle with our sin, and we think, I don't think he actually knows how hard this is. Maybe God is just kind of clueless. He doesn't get how really hard this is. So what I want to do this morning is we're, gonna, we're kind of thinking at the larger biblical narrative kind of story, thinking through um, the, some, some key ideas that we're familiar with but haven't actually thought through how this theology affects our lives. So we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about process, time, and efficiency. 
process, time, and efficiency, and I hope you'll see this, is, this can really help us rethink how we imagine God in our lives. So let's begin with process. I teach at Covenant College, as you mentioned, I'm right above Chattanooga, Tennessee, um, even though it's in Georgia. And one of my best friends there is an artist named Jeffrey Morton. He's actually from the Philadelphia area, not too far from here. And so he got there about when I did. I've been there 22 years. And for whatever strange reason, when he came to Covenant, this had never been a subject of his art before, but he ended up deciding kudzu was going to be what he did a lot of art on. Now, some of you know what kudzu is. Some of you have no idea. This is super weird. Kudzu is that invasive plant that, like, covers everything and spreads because, at least in our region, there's nothing to stop it, right? So people buy goats and stuff. (laughs) So for whatever reason, Morty, as he's often called, found this super interesting. So he lives on Signal Mountain, and what will happen is he will go out into the middle of the woods... And he'll be like waist deep with kudzu and other things, can't even see his feet. And he'll be out there for hours sketching what he sees, right? Trying to, trying to ignore whatever's slithering down by his feet. And I, I always think to myself, like, I didn't know artists were tough, right? I didn't know, I didn't know you had to be brave. Um, but here's what's interesting. So, so what Morty will do is after he's out there for a long, long time and he has all these sketches, he'll eventually... He goes back, gets to his studio, and then in the coming days, weeks, and normally months, he will take those sketches and then take to a big canvas, and he will start to paint. Now, I, am, I have no artistic skills at all. You know, I, I, what's that guy, the guy who paint by numbers or whatever, not paint by numbers, but, you know, with the hair, Bob, whatever his name was. Anyways, I just kind of think, you know, painting, what do you do? You just kind of imagine something, you take some paint, you, you, you paint, and then you're done. You're like, look, it's pretty or it's ugly. I don't know, right? That's, but apparently, professional painters, often that is not the way it works. And I had no idea. And so actually what Morty will do in that, in that over, over this long period of time is he will. He'll mix up colors. He's looking for very particular kind of cover, colors. And then he'll do a layer. And then he'll scrape it. And then he'll do another layer. And then after, he might scrape it again. And it gets this texture and this thickness to it. And in the end, the finished products, right, end up in... They, you know, I, they were in the um, Nashville airport and in the Hunter Museum and in businesses and in homes, right? And it's not like anyone can see all the layers. But I do think it's fair that, to say that observers, we could feel it, even if you can't directly see it. So here's what's interesting. If you ask Morty, who's a professor with me, what do you want your students most to learn? He will immediately say, process. Process as an artist, right? What he wants to do is he wants his students to learn that process is as important or more important than finished products. We all want finished products. The students want to have artworks. And he wants to help them understand the beauty and wonder and joy of the slow craft of producing an artwork. He mentors them in the promise and delight of development. 
Now, if you're like me, and the odds are you are, in this part of the world, process is very difficult for us to value, right? We value growth and speed. And I don't know how else to help you understand this, but with this illustration. And there are some of you here who are old enough to know exactly what I'm talking about, and you can explain it to the other people later. So do some of you remember AOL? Right? And I was laughing because my, my father, who's 85, still has an AOL email address. I don't even know how it's possible, but he does. <laughs> so anyways, those of you who don't know what AOL, some of you will remember. So AOL, like in the early 90s, you had this, you know, it was a way to get on the internet and to send email. And some of you will remember, right, their kind of router or whatever, it'd be in your house and you'd want to go online to send an email or get online. And you remember, it was like, you'd hear this, right? Remember that process? It was so exciting. It was like, oh, we're going to get on, we're going to get on, right? And you, now remember that. It's amazing. Now imagine this. What if someone came to your business or to your home and they took out all the Wi-Fi routers, all the contemporary technology, and they installed AOL 1993? What would happen? I'm from the South, and I'm pretty sure there people would die because everyone has guns. Sorry, that was supposed to be funny. But yeah, like, because can you imagine? It's so slow compared to what we experience now. And we're like, ah, you know, you don't want anything spinning. We need it now. You get a new phone and you love your phone. You're like, this is so great. It's so fast. And after two years, what do you think? This thing is a piece of junk. It's amazing. What's happening is we are all being conditioned ever more constantly to get faster, quicker, We want ever-increasing speed. So in a culture of rapid download speeds and instant gratification, how in the world are you and I ever to learn to value process? Slowness. There's a similar impatience when it comes to God. God, I want instinct. I I want to be instantly changed. I know I shouldn't yell at my kids, but I still do. Right? I don't want to be trapped in self-absorption, but it never seems to end. My disordered desires that feed greed and lust, they just linger. Sin for us is not a past issue. It is a present challenge. And it takes you and I a lot of significant effort not to give up, to persevere. So we ask again, When God extends his grace to our broken and needy lives, why does it, honestly, why does it feel like he stops at forgiveness? Right? Is it that when God brings us to himself, the good news is he forgives our sins, and then after we're forgiven, he steps back and goes, now get at it. And I think sometimes unintentionally that is how we understand the gospel. So listen to me very carefully. The gospel includes the forgiveness of sins. But that's not the only. The gospel is more than that. It's just never less than that. You see the difference? 
God doesn't just forgive our sins and then step back and go, let's see what happens. And that's just the good news. The good news is the God who forgives us our, our sins is the God who's with us, the God who's working, who continues to forgive us, who empowers us, who gives us his spirit. This is the God who is working. But we wonder, why doesn't he just instantly transform us? And because we know how far short we fall, often we know in a way that very few others know, we deal with a lot of guilt and shame about these continued struggles. We see where the finished product should be and where we are. And we just, like... Is God just constantly frustrated with us, right? God forgives us our sins, and so you woke up this morning forgiven, and God's like, do it today. And before you even got to church, you and your spouse were being passive-aggressive against one another. And you said things that were, you know, whatever, I don't know what it was. And you're like, oh, I screwed it up, maybe tomorrow. Is that, is that God's view every day in our lives where God's like, yeah, today? And then God's like, oh, man. It's only 8.30 in the morning? Like, how, how do we think about this? The fact is, although God does not, he clearly does not enjoy our sin, could it be, and this is what I want you to consider, could it be that God actually values process and growth and the work involved in it. So some of you will remember doing this with your kids or other kids or friends, the kind of thing. But remember like helping a child actually just before service or between the services. There's a little girl in here. It was this very same thing. She was walking around. And they're trying to learn how to walk, right? And she, she can't walk yet. So she's getting her hand. And she went chair to chair to chair walking. But she saw things she wanted to get to, Right? So I remember with my son, Jonathan, when he's my oldest, you know, teaching him how to walk. And you remember this? You kind of get him, stand him next to a couch, right? And he's, he's kind of, he was the Teletubby kind of, you know, you know, anyway. So he was like wobbling around and he's just, but he's holding it. He's kind of, and then I'd back away eight, ten feet. You get, you get away from him. And you look at him. You try and be really upbeat and positive about the whole thing. You're like, you can do this, buddy. This is awesome. Come on. And he's looking at you for courage, for, right? And then eventually, he takes his hand off the couch, and what happens? Maybe gets a step or two, and then... And so what, what happened, as you know, is I walk over to Jonathan, and I look at him, and I just say, You're an idiot! What are you doing? I so clearly told you to walk. Right? Some of you are never sure. Like, is he serious? He kind of seems serious. <laughs> like, let's call child protection right now. Don't worry. He's, he's about 21. It's fine. It's okay. But, like, did I do that? Did I say to my son, Jonathan, I don't understand. I gave you a clear commandment. I told you instructions. There was no ambiguity in what I asked of you. I, you're there. I'm here. I said walk. You know what to do. And then you fell. You know I didn't do that. And yet, it's interesting because the way we think of our Father in heaven is different. Right? I knew 
Jonathan, I, was I indifferent to Jonathan learning how to walk? No, I knew he needed to walk, but I knew his situation even better than him. I knew he was going to take some muscle development and balance and time and, you know, and, and a lot of falling. I remember, you know, I was clueless. And so when, when Jonathan, our firstborn, you know, learning to walk, so you know what I'm talking about, like he hit everything. We'll be like bruises and cuts in his face. And I'm like, honey, we're not leaving the house. Everyone's going to think, you know, you're beating the stuff. And then by the next child, you're like, yeah, let's go. Who cares? It's fine. Because you realize, oh, that's just part of learning to walk. They, they fumble, they hit things, and you don't, you don't really know. That's the process, right? But when it comes to our Heavenly Father, for whatever reason, many of us, including me, are tempted to think very poorly of Him. As if He expects us to be instantly flawless, to never make a mistake, to never fall and hit the ground. As if this omni-omni-omni-God, right, the God who is omniscient who knows all things who's omnipresent who's everywhere who is who is god is constantly surprised and frustrated can't imagine how that happened to us no 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 but we can think of him as a temperamental father in a way and i would encourage you to talk with others about this later as you try and figure out what is your perception of our god right one of, the, one of the questions you can ask is this. Does the Christian life feel fundamentally heavy and burdensome? Or does it feel promising and hopeful? Because if it only... I'm not saying there aren't hard times. And trust me, right? I get that. But even in the midst of suffering and pain and difficulty, is the Christian life promising and hopeful or is it just to be endured? Because how you think through that will reveal certain perceptions we often have of our God. God designed and made us to be finite. That's a fancy word for saying limited. You and I were made from the very beginning to have limits. Limits in space and time and knowledge and power. It's a fancy way of just saying God made us as creatures. You were never made to be everywhere, to do everything, to know everything. That's not... Your inability to be everywhere, know everything, do everything, that's not because you're a sinner. It's because you're a creature. Being a creature means having limits. And part of having limits and being a finite creature is this ability to grow and to develop. That's a good thing. That would be true of us even if there were no sin or fall. Right? I mean, uh, part of it... You know, this is this is beyond what we can do right now. But part of it is an indicator of how um, difficult this has become for us. Is think about the word dependence. If I say, you know, guys, I've spent a bunch of time with Pastor uh, Jeremy this weekend, and um, he's just like really dependent on a lot of people. Does that sound like a compliment in our culture? It's never a compliment to say someone's dependent on others. We're like, oh, that's terrible. And yet, biblically, God made creatures, before there was sin or fall, to be dependent on him, to be dependent on neighbor, and to be dependent on the earth. We were made, part of the goodness of being made as human creatures, is to be dependent on God, dependent on, on neighbor, and dependent on the earth. That's the context for love. That's the context for relationship. 
So how in the world do you grow in Christian discipleship when the whole idea of dependence is thought of as purely negative in our culture? I'm aware of codependence and distorted views of dependence, but I'm talking about good, healthy, appropriate dependence. You see, part of what we need to realize is God made us as creatures who can and should grow. And we need to reconnect the God of creation with the God of recreation. If I say, did God create? We're like, yes. And we're like, yeah, yeah, that's really important. But then when we start talking about our salvation or our sanctification, it's as if creation is irrelevant. But it's the same God. And the way God worked in creation is the way he works in our recreation, in our sanctification. The, the spirit who hovered over the water to bring order out of the tohu lebohu, over the, over the chaotic waters in Genesis 1-2, that same spirit is the spirit that dwells in your heart and is slowly bringing order and doing a work in us. God, the point is God has always, not just now, God has always valued process. So let's start talking about time. Time. God takes his time. Isn't that interesting? Do you think God is in a rush? Have you ever thought about that? Like you and I are constantly, well, a lot of us, maybe not you, maybe you're like, I'm chill. <laughs> but a lot of us feel like we're constantly in a rush. Is God in a rush? He's, he's not in a rush. That's not how it is with God, right? He doesn't need to be. He's God. And that's interesting because, again, with God, we tend to think of God and goodness in terms of finished products. But actually, that is not what you find biblically again and again. So let's think through this a little bit. How fast can God do something? How fast, can God, how fast could God make the world? Could he do it that fast? Could he do it faster than that? However, you know, God could do it as fast as he wanted, right? He could make anything and everything in a millisecond or faster. I just don't know what you would call faster than a millisecond, right? The question is, did he? So it's interesting. I actually think as evangelicals, especially as conservative evangelicals, we tend to have a very weak or underdeveloped doctrine of creation. And people say, what do you mean? We talk about creation. I'm like, For the last 150 years, when we say creation, pretty much the only thing we tend to talk about is debating when God made the world, and how he made it. And I'm not saying there's not relevance to those conversations. They're just not the most important questions biblically, and we've made them the only questions. So what we're talking about today has everything to do with our understanding of creation. So let's think through this a little bit. So I'm going to give you a free factoid. If you get nothing else from this, I'm going to tell you exactly when God made the world. Are you ready? And we'll be able to have an anniversary soon, because here it is. October 22nd, 4004 B.C. That is, I don't actually think that, but that is, I can't tell with you guys. If you're like, I don't know. So um, that, but that is the exact date that in the 17th century, Archbishop James Usher came up with. He was trying as faithful as he could. He's trying to get from the Bible, come up with a date. And so he said, 4004 BC. Now you do have, you still have Christians who will, who will say the earth is probably very young. Maybe it's 10,000 years old, something like that. Okay. And then you have other Christians who will say the earth is 4.5 billion years old or something like that. Are those the same? They're not the same. It's kind of a big spectrum. 
But for our purpose, I don't actually care where you're at on that spectrum. Here's what's super interesting. No matter where you're at on that spectrum, you know what all Christians tend to agree? God could have made it like that and doesn't. He takes days. And whether those days represent 24-hour days or billions of years, for our purposes, irrelevant. The whole point is, even if they're 24-hour days, God didn't need days. He didn't even need a millisecond. So the God who could have done it like that and doesn't, that's really interesting. Because it tells you God has always valued process. God does not fret about taking his time. He seems to, isn't that interesting? He seems to enjoy it. He doesn't tend to do things instantaneously. He can. He can make a dead person rise instant. But that's not his normal pattern. Normally he takes days. He's the creator. He, he delights in shaping and creating and sustaining. Right In the Genesis narrative, when you actually look at it, it's quite beautifully written. The whole point is God makes a space, whether it's the sky or the sea. He'll make a space, and then later he'll fill the space. There's all this intentionality and process going on. And what you do know, what we should not debate about, is in Genesis 1, after every day, God makes a space. He'll fill a space. He'll do whatever on that day. And what does it say every time? Oh, it's good. God's like, oh, that's really good. And the next day you're like, oh, no, that. That is really good. Oh, I love that. Right? That God has always been comfortable working and taking his time. He's clearly building his creation with purpose and care. You find this even with Adam, the human, right? Our Adam and Eve, but Adam is from the, quote, dust of the ground. However he did it, God didn't just say, Adam, from the dust of the ground he makes him. God loves process. He likes to do what? He's a good and beautiful craftsman. He's a creator. And he builds with purpose and care. God is not panicked by process, but, as our text said, and this is where I want you to see it, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Right? Because I'm in college. Sometimes you'll get people, young couples, that get really excited. They might get married or something, and they're like, let's build a house. <laughs> and they've got no money. And they lay a foundation, right? Or buy a, and then they, they're stuck. And I always think about... Um, and we lived in Orlando for three years in, in Florida. And uh, by the I-4, there's this, and I think it was around 2007. I should double check exactly when it happened. But there, were, there was, you know, whoever it was, they were building this huge skyscraper. I want to say, I don't know, 10, 12 um, stories high. And then I have no idea what happened. But I think it was around 2008. So it could have been the crash. But all I know is that skyscraper that was built all the way up stopped they never even it looks well done on the inside but then they never even put up the windows and it's been sitting there for ages now and and apparently now in florida they call it the eyesore on i4 right 
clearly some people lost millions of dollars. But you had people who said, let's do this. They began this good work and then did not have the resources to see it through. And sometimes we feel that with our lives. We're kind of like, God, God saved me. And now God's like, Kelly, I didn't know you'd be so expensive. Right? You got way more renovation work in your life. And I didn't, I didn't understand. So God's looking at his, like, is that true with God? But we feel it, right? We're like, ah, I asked for forgiveness. And just like, is it too many times? I stumbled again. No, that's not the case. That's not the case. God will never forget you or me. He will see these things through to the end. It may be hard, and the process can be difficult to fight, to hope, in the strength of Christ to resist sin. But the surprise is that in the process, God is doing something. He's molding us. He's shaping us. He's not wasting the process. So let's talk about efficiency. Efficiency. Have you ever thought about that? Is God efficient? So to think through this, church buildings are fascinating. <clears throat> because they can be designed in all kinds of ways. And I, I was asking yesterday, <clears throat> sorry, it sounds like you know these buildings, there was a process, and I think maybe this one was in the 70s or something, maybe 80s, I don't know. But what would be very common is when a church is to build a sanctuary, for example, the congregation is going to have debates. <clears throat> Sorry about that. The congregation is going to have debates, and one of the questions will be, how should we make it? Like, think about how high that ceiling is. What a waste of money. Right? Like, you could, and these are legitimate questions. Go, why, why that? We could legally just get away with eight-foot ceilings and then give that money, that extra money, away to the materially poor. That's at least a legitimate to wrestle through. But here's what's interesting, right? Because it, And that would work. It would be efficient. But how would this feel in here if it was eight-foot ceilings? How would that affect our worship? How claustrophobic, right? It's very interesting. So part of the, why I bring these things up is, it, is it, it's interesting, right? Are these things, uh, you know, architectural extras, are they indulgent? Is God indulgent? Here's the definition of indulgent in this way. Having or indicating a tendency to be overly generous or lenient with someone. Is God indulgent toward us? Is he overly generous? I don't actually want to defend the word indulgence because I, I can understand that's probably overly too much baggage with it. But, the, but it is a question, right? Is God just overly generous with the design of his creation, with us? His, jumping back to architecture as an illustration, historians of architecture and social critics now, especially since the 1950s, have been following this because because in the, in the middle of the 20th century, and it still happens, but there was a big movement to try and make efficiency the, the fundamental guide when you built something. Makes sense. Like, make it as efficient as possible. 
But there were all kinds of unintended consequences. So when we lived in London for three years, for example, near us was this housing project, and it was all thick gray, uh, like thick gray concrete, this massive structure. The windows were very small. Inside is indoor-outdoor carpeting. Every wall is like beige, cinder block. Oh, it was efficient. And it just laid on people like a lead blanket and affected people. Unintended consequences. Just as beauty feeds our souls, the lack of it, the lack of beauty starves us of something we feel even if we can't articulate. Right? We can feel, we wonder, where is the life? Where's the beauty? Where is the loving process? Right? So here's where it relates. Do you know that God's highest value is not efficiency? I want you to think this because if you're like me, I'm, I am an American. I'm an American. I, I like America. I've lived in other parts of the world, love other parts of the world, but I'm an American. I'm a Westerner. There's, there's good and bad in that. But just so you know, the reality is I am soaked in the values of efficiency. My to-do list and the getting things done as quickly as possible is, is everything. And the problem is, as Christians, we've just baptized it. And we say it's the Christian way. So is God's highest value efficiency? And the answer is no. God's highest value is love. God's more interested in beauty than the speed than speed and process. He's more concerned to lift our gaze, to provoke a song, to stimulate our imagination than he is to just get things done. Put it this way. Think about God creating the world. Like how wasteful. Here's what I mean. And I don't mean to pick on you. It's fine. But a lot of you in your homes, every room in your house is what color? White. That's not bad. It can be very beautiful. But one of the reasons we do white is it's super efficient, right? Because and I like white walls. And then also when something happens, one can of paint can fix any of the walls. You get it? Now, I just, just as an illustration, here's the interesting thing. If that works and that's super nice, why didn't God just make the world white and gray? Think of how efficient that would have been. But actually... God's not wasteful or negligent. He's purposeful and wise, but he doesn't do it that way. Why the extravagance of the peacock's feathers? Why the careful complexity of an orchid? The multi-layered nature of the human voice. We could actually come up with explanations for each of these. But really, is it so necessary to have all these colors, so much diversity, so much depth and wonder? Well, it makes sense because God's not driven by efficiency alone. Love and beauty and wonder and worship are God's main goals. Sometimes he's astonishingly efficient. He can turn water to wine. He can make a dead person rise. But normally, because he's more compelled by love than efficiency, he takes his time and does a pro. Exodus takes time. Process has always been a normal pattern for the way God works. 
Gary Selby is an American professor um, in a college, and he took takes students anyways. One time he was taking a, a group of students to East Africa and kind of some sociological work. And so one of the first days, they'll send them out in small groups to just make observations and come back and report on them. And it, it talks about how he had this group of students, small group, and they came back, they were excited to report what they thought they saw in their conclusions. And basically what they saw at this one point was they saw three or four men doing a task that they were convinced only required one man to do. And so as they talked about what they saw, there was a lot of moral language and judgment because of how inefficient and even quote-unquote, backward this was. And as Selby tried to listen, he just started to help them rethink some things. Because in that, that part of the world, particularly the country they were at, efficiency was a value, but it wasn't the highest value. Friendship, community, some of these values, and this is hard for us as Americans to even imagine, are higher values than efficiency. It's a different kind of thing. And so all of a sudden, it's trying to rethink this. And this is not me romanticizing one culture over another. All of our cultures have sins and all of our cultures have strengths. But our own cultures, we tend to struggle seeing the blind spots. Here's the thing. Love, community, growth of character are often, love, community, growth of character, they're often, though not always, but they're often at odds with efficiency. Right? I, I mean, my kids are, you know, adults now, but it drives you crazy as a parent, doesn't it? You're like, brush your teeth. I've said that 17,000 times. Wipe well, I'll just stop there, right? <laughs> like it's so, you're like, why am I still saying this? It's not efficient, is it? And that's how our lives work. It's process. It's development. Do you know what one of the most inefficient things you can possibly do in the world is? It's love, right? Love a child. Love a, you know, I, I was telling <laughs> this, this young couple in our Sunday school, they, they were, you know, energetic, and et cetera, and they were going to the mission field, and they said, we're leaving July 15th, and we're kind of looking, and because we knew she was pregnant, when the baby do? And the baby's due, like, June 20th. And everyone's like, because we're nice church people, we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but you can imagine, it didn't work, did it? They just thought, you throw the baby on their backpack, you go, you do all of your things that you were normally doing, but that's not how it works when you have a baby. Babies are needy, and you love them. Puppies are needy. Love is not like a marriage that's built on efficiency is more like an employer and an employee. Love is often very inefficient. You, quote, waste time together a lot. No, love, the creator has always been comfortable prioritizing love and growth over efficiency and check marks. So let me conclude. Beloved, do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. 
It's easy for you and I to grow discouraged. When we reflect on our lives, parts of our lives people know about, parts of our lives people don't, we see how far short we fall. We see our ongoing struggles with troublesome attitudes and addictions and actions, and we long for them to just immediately end. And I have known alcoholics who God just healed. I've known people in those kind of situations, but that is not normally how God works. Not because he loves you less, because he's a creator who likes to recreate and transform us slowly into the image more and more of his son. Ordinarily, God changes our lives by picking us up when we fall. Embracing us, drawing us into the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Spirit. So beloved, do not lose heart. He who began a good work in you. He, he, you and I are weak. You and I are inconsistent. But he will see it through to completion. Never forget the triune God values process. He takes his time because he is more driven by love than efficiency, and he will not let you go. Let's pray. Our good God, these words are easier said than lived. But we want to entrust you with our lives as imperfect, as inconsistent as they are. There are some here who are dealing with real addiction. Give them the courage for tomorrow. Give them the courage to ask others for help as part of your process. Give them the courage to imagine life can be different. I pray for those who are dealing with pain physically, emotionally, and otherwise. And I pray that you would lift the, their gaze to you. Give them the courage to see your smiling face. Give them the courage to hear and believe your benediction. May your words of grace be more true to them than the images and realities of their pain and suffering and sin. Lord, you know the stories here. You know those who maybe don't even know you, and yet you're working in process even that they're here. Draw them deep into your love and grace. Thank you for beginning a work in us, and thank you that you will see it to completion. And so we pray, not confident in ourselves, but confident in the risen and reigning King. Amen. Well, why don't we uh, thank Kelly for joining us. And once again, there are just a few books of his out at the Welcome Center. Feel free to stop back there as you leave. Why don't we stand and let's say these verses from Philippians chapter 1 once again. Let's say them with conviction. Let's say them with maybe another level of understanding or perspective that we learned in the last few minutes, let's say this together as we leave. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for all of you, 
I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Why don't we thank Kelly once again. Our prayer team is down here to the right. We'd love to pray with you. God bless. Have a wonderful day and be confident that God is completing his work in you. God bless.